Well, hey there and welcome to episode number 106 of Groove, the No Trouble podcast, which you can always find at notrouble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. Okay, the one, the only, Mike Watt. How are you, sir? Hi. Actually, there's some more because one time I was playing a pad in uh, Guelph, Ontario, up Canada. It was called Trasheteria. And I get there and this cat says, Hey, I want you to meet somebody. It's the boss. Hey, Mike Watt, meet Mike Watt. And the guy who owned the pad was named, one of them, same name. But I'm the one who lives ready? in Pedro and I'm the one who works the big ship. Yeah, and I was getting ready for this conversation. We were talking before we hit record that back in the early mid-90s, I had interviewed you many times around some of your solo work, which was incredible. And then I didn't realize that you actually worked with a Montreal publisher as well for oh, uh, my lyric for, book. of a minute. Yeah. yeah. Right, right, right. And Montreal's right. a pretty good city. And also, he translated into not just French, but Quebecois, right? <laughs> Where like the heaviest cuss word is tabard. <laughs> of course, I had to say that first time on stage. But no, it's beautiful, beautiful about that. That's one of the things about touring. You meet other people. You play other towns. It even teaches you about your hometown because that bungee cord snaps you back. Man, if I was like schools are, two things. You'd have to learn how to play drums before you graduated. And then you'd have to do some touring just to check out other bands, meet other people. I mean, you've been touring how many years now? Would you say you've been on the road? Well, if you call like a tour more than a month, it's just arbitrary. Some people call one gig a tour. Like Flag did four month, hundred gig tours. You know, it, so there's a spectrum, right? So let's <laughs> say arbitrary a month. I've done 67. So about 40, I'm, I'm coming up on my uh, 41st, 42nd year of tour. Only 42 years more I yeah. I was going to say, how, how do you see the world? I started traveling for business as one does a bit later in life than touring when I was young and in a band. And I have my own perspective about cities and how different they are. And then maybe more or less sometimes the same. You go down a main strip of any city and it's got a Zara and an H&M and it can become kind of homogenous. Do you search out the different culture or do you see that kind of homogeny hitting across the board? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I, they're parallel streams because there's a reason why that town was built way back or whenever. And then there's this modern thing that can make money out of gentrification, swanning and destroy that and make, make it same old, same old. Hey, this is Orange County. No, it's not. It's Knoxville, Tennessee. Are you sure? Right? Because there's two or three companies building all the track homes, which me yeah. growing up Navy, I know military housing. I know the template. But there's still a reason that town was built there and why people still live there. So that's what I try to pick up. Remember, again, I'm not there long. I play one night, one nighters mainly, you know, so I'm just there for that thing. Even if you go back, like some, some towns are perennials, right? You're going to do them every tour. New York City, for example. They still change in between the tours. And, and when you hit it, that moment and who you meet at that moment. So even if you've been there buttloads of times, it can still be unique sitch. So just like where I got this kind of philosophy, middle age taught me, everybody's got something to teach you. Only if you keep your mind open, same kind of sense where I'm doing what you're saying, coming into these towns. I see what I'm doing. Kind of like you said, business, you did it for business. I see it more like kind of a tradition of vaudeville. Before there was centralized music and entertainment production, especially farmers and worker people of those towns, you had to go work their rooms because there was no other way to, for them to get it. And so I, I see myself part of that kind of tradition, even though, again, another parallel stream of whatever. Steely Dan, right? They didn't tour for years, just put out the record, selling them. I'm more. Yeah, I remember Minutemen. 
hey, it's six months. We got to put out another rep. We put out records to promote gigs. Complete yeah. opposite of the industry. Then that industry was only a little. If you look at the big thing at time, that was little. So I think I, I'm going back actually to the actual tradition. The Torin that became a record promotion, that was a little blip. I think the a vaudeville thing, and then before that, what, troubadours and stuff like this? Yeah. Singing for your supper, that's kind of thing. I'm, I see it part of that kind of tradition. It does feel like that's the vibe to post-COVID even a little bit, that people want to go out and engage, be part of community, see music more. But also, I think streaming has pushed it as well, just because the money's not there and selling the actual souvenir anymore. Yeah, good point. <laughs> good point. You know, they wanted everybody to rebuy their record collection as CDs, and it bit them in the ass, right? What's it called? The Law of Unseen Consequences. Yeah, there's uh, strategic byproducts to every interaction as well that sometimes aren't positive, I guess. Right, right. But my heart bleeds pink lemonade for them. Yeah. Well, I learned touring from Black Flag. You know, this is where the movement was. It was trippy, though, at the beginning when I went to gigs up in Hollywood in the 70s. Like nobody, I think only the Dills had a van. So that was kind of a Black Flag thing. The early, the 70s punk, Hollywood punk that I knew, I grew up with. Yeah, they're going to be kings of Hollywood. I mean, some New York City bands would come like Ramones, Johnny Thunder. But I didn't get to see Richard Helter like 82, 83. I mean, Greg Gittin, uh, the Black Flag thing really got into this thing of touring. Really did. And uh, we're SSTO2. So we learned, you know, Chuck Tukowski's phone book. And that was, that was the thing. That was the I'm still touring on that circuit. Just about to leave on another one, right? So uh, let's move into talking about, let's talk a little bit about the bass. One of my favorite instruments and seeing you play the bass had definitely had a huge impact on me. I could talk about your first bass. If Wikipedia is correct, we're talking about a hundred dollar K bass. Is that, is, is that, was Wikipedia yeah. right on that? Well, whoever wrote that, I don't think there's a Wikipedia God. I think people submit things. And that uh, thing okay. that was submitted was correct. $100 K. I was uh, tying papers for LA Times. The Sunday ones were really fat, right? We had these machines underneath the uh, Park Western Shopping Center. That's how I got the money up. It kind of looked like an EB3, a Gibson EB3, but uh, it wasn't. It didn't sound like it. Uh, action was about, you could stick your forearm between the strings and the fretboard. So it was a little... <laughs> William Tell Overture bow and arrow thing. <laughs> you know, but hey, it you didn't get the up. same setups you get today. Yeah. It built up strength. Well, and get this. I didn't like this orange and yellow. You know, they're trying to do like kind of a fender two tone paint job. So I went and I took sandpaper and put it around a drill bit, put it in a drill, and I sanded all that finish off so but it was all beveled in you know because you can't do it like that should have used a belt sander yeah but yeah it was ridiculous but it was my first what what did you call it mod it was my first mod take off the finish <laughs> be all natural with divots all over the place. how old were you when you first bought that base well, but not you know i start when i'm 12 right d boone's ma puts me on bed that's the first day i go to his pad I met him the day before. I brought him to my apartment. I said, you have to come to my apartment the next day. And his ma played guitar as a girl. So she had him take a lessons from this guy who lived in his car, Roy Mendes Lopez. And she goes, you guys are going to have a band. And she just meets me, right? And you're going to play the bass. I don't know what a bass is. We're 12. It's a summer between sixth grade and seventh grade, right? We're going to go into junior high. And uh, I just wanted to be with him. So sure, I'll be in the band. <laughs> you know, now we find out later it was kind of econo childcare. She wanted us in the house after school, you know, because in those days you had no idea. There was only arena rock, right? This is 1970, the summer of 1970. So the club thing had kind of disappeared. Now looking back at the movement, that's what it was about. For us people who didn't know club music, because helping the Stooges for 126 months, I found out there was club music. There was little labels. There was garage bands. 
but it went away for a brief period in the 70s when this uh, like Nuremberg rally trend turned over with rock and roll and they did sports venues, right? Um, the first gig me and D. Boone saw was T-Rex. He was about this. <laughs> it was yeah, maybe smaller than that. He was so little. D. Boone's daddy steps <laughs> out with us. So I get back to the instrument. I don't get that K till I'm 15. I'm in the 10th grade that summer. For three years, I play a guitar with four strings. I got this guitar at the pawn shop. I thought basses. I didn't know bass meant lower. Yeah, I thought it was Ed Skinner. Remember, I don't see any in person. I'm only seeing pictures on album covers. And it looks like a four-string guitar, which is funny because some people kind of play it that way, right? All these years later, I realize now it's a four-string drum set, not four-string guitar. But those days, who knew? Because remember the sounds, you're at the gig. When you see pictures, you see all them amps on the stage. That's because they're using the PA just for the singer. So the bass, and, and they're built for hockey and basketball game. Oh, you can imagine why nobody wanted to rock the bass. Except James Jamerson. Yeah, that's crazy. But James Jamerson, he's not a failed guitar guy looking for gigs. He's actually a stand-up bass man who moves over to the new machine because it records better. And I can hear him on AM radio. I can hear him in those Motowns. That's what the bass is. That's what Jack D- Bruce does in that Cream Band. I got this eight, those days were eight tracks, right? Because they want people taping their own cassettes. So you can play these in your car. Mm. Hard to learn songs. You can't lift up the needle and go back. You got to wait for that one fourth of the total program. Yeah. But Jack Bruce, mm. that's what he's doing. He's doing what James Jamerson is doing. I just, at the gigs, Mark Curry, the T-Rex guy, you know, he might have been my minute. You know, I couldn't tell, but I could tell on those recordings, especially England rock and roll in those days. They had the bass loud and not blurry. When I met T, uh, D. Boone, the only rock and roll band he knew was Creed's. He's got all six, you know, fuck Mardi Gras, but the six real records. I can't tell what the big, you know, now I can I'm act, what you call acclimated like you would with the cold and hot weather. Stu Cook's good. I couldn't hear what he was doing. So that's why, you know, I'm looking at the album covers. Look at the singer. Now, Mark Boland likes boas, but this guy likes these plaid. You know, I'm Navy, grow up Navy housing. I don't know farmers or lumberjacks. I thought that was his rock and roll shirt. So I thought if I wore flannels, D. Boone would still like me. Bass was so mysterious to me. I got to tell you, it was, it, and then you know the thing about tuning, right? Me and Deep Boone did not know about having this. You know, we thought if you played down on the corner and it sounded right, you were in tune. We didn't know your down on the corner had to be the other guy's down. We thought some people like loose strings, some people like tight strings. You know, the the moon boom when it came, <laughs> we were ready for it anyway. You know, we were just guys who wanted to hang out. And we didn't even know about writing your own songs. Nobody we knew did that. So it was like building models. You know, you try to copy songs off records. I got to tell you, the movement, we were ready. Graduate, graduate 1976. Another lucky thing, right? Well, that's what I was curious about. There's music happening at a really different pace in those years. And you're you're 12 13 you're a sponge for it it's not like you're also exposed to the internet and other things music is it was culture it was the counter records it was all of that at once yeah it's records and concerts that's all it is there's a little bit on the tv don kirshner had a show i think there was the midnight special yep and and then abc had something called in concert which was basically just filming a, a, a arena rock gig, right? But that's all there was. There were some magazines. Cream was maybe the only good one. First there was Crawdaddy and then Cream. The other ones were just shills for the labels, right? You're right. And then the way things changed so quick, one, two years, and it's just a whole nother paradigm. Things, by middle 80s, late 80s, it, it plateaus out. 
But it seems based off of your career and the music you create that with all that happening in culture, you are hearing or wanting something different in your art and your music and your bass playing. Do you know where that came from? Because it wasn't just CCR, whatever's happening in concert. No, it's D Boone. It's my bandmate. He's got this idea of mis- mixing politics in music, but it's not what he got three lyrics. He thinks we can do it by the organization. I'm laughing because, you know, I just love the idea. It's so Econo, <laughs> which was another thing we developed, but not just a slogan. But this idea of making a band like an economy, and why not make it less hierarchy? Why has it got to be the lead singer and the guitar player? Why can't we bring the drum and the bass in? Of course, me and Georgie yeah. are but this is D Boone's idea. And he hears it in R&B music with the rhythm guitar players playing really trebly and really clipped and making room for the rhythm section. So D Boone's thinking about the actual instrumentation as being a political state. You know, you understand mm-hmm. with the, the movement, every, a lot of those cats you could tell were just starting out playing. So in a way, it was a level... All of a sudden, the best guy ain't the guitar guy. Bass is right up there with him. His drumming is right up there with him. Yeah. Man, that was, that, I think, gave him the idea of it. I think that's what gave him the idea. But I got to give him credit for it, okay? And that's what, he, and of course, me and Georgie were, you know, you're going to make room for it? I still have this philosophy when I compose on bass. It's called working the holes. You got to almost see into yeah. the future and make space for your collaborators. This comes from my playing with my buddy. The reason I got into music, right? Just to be with my buddy. But man, is it fundamental to my core. Did you hear words like punk, alternative, indie? Were those words even in the lexicon when you're thinking about music and you're sitting with D Boone and Jamming? Or do they come through a different way? Like, how do those words enter into people defining what this is ultimately? Well, that first one, we heard, but it was a pejorative. It was not a good word. Punk was a guy who got fucked in jail for cigarettes. I mean, no one wa- we could not understand why someone would call their music that. These other two words you used, they were industry uh, kind of concocted, like New Wave. New Wave actually was some kind of French film thing in the 60s. But yeah, uh, sure. No, no, it's skinny guys, skinny tie guys in the early 80s. <laughs> sure. You know, whatever you want to do. And then, and I, that other word really was scary to me because the alternative to music to me is like silence. And and I knew clowns were going to misuse that word. Now we got this shit like outright and stuff. I said, be careful of that word. Semantics, you know, Mr. Wittgenstein was on to something. It, it can kind of, at least uh, kind of phrase the argument a little bit. It doesn't run it if, you, if yeah. you're looking for truth. John Coltrane said all musicians are after some kind of truth. He's, you could tell when you play a phony note, he said. So there's something about words having to speak the truth, right? I, I wrote a song. Do you want a new wave or do you want the truth? <laughs> I don't know. It was so trippy, the idea of writing words, making statements. Mm-hmm. You know, especially with that one where D. Boone makes that statement initially, where bass and drums are just as important as guitar and singing. Well, there's a type of music, though, and it's called bebop. And there was stuff happening in jazz. And when I think about, you know, I happened to grow up more in the early 80s, late 70s, and I was big into the heavy stuff and the underground stuff. And that led me down this road now as I get older. And I'm a big fan of jazz and improv and Coltrane, you name it. I I can imagine myself walking into Birdland. And that was like walking into CBGBs and seeing the Ramones for the first time. When you would see these people ripping and doing this. And I was just trying to understand what you and D-Bone were listening to or what was in your peer group, because how was there not any form of bebop or jazz or improv that was somehow also eking its way in while you're listening to CCR and all this other stuff? Well, first time I heard John Coltrane and knew it was him, Raymond Pettibone played me uh, Ascension after a germs gig. We go to his pad and I thought it was, I thought, I knew it was older. But I thought he was a punk rocker. I had no idea that right. he was a, a jazz guy or anything. 
that was my first. And then Raymond starts to take me to gigs. He takes me to his drummer, Elvin Jones, playing at uh, Catalina's on Coenga up in Hollywood. And I, I, exactly like you said, this parallel, like Birdland, like the whiskey <laughs> or, uh, uh, no, you said CB's Hillies, Hillies bad. Yeah. yeah. Like that. Here's the understanding I've come to Mitch. Here's what I've come to. I really hate the idea of genre. I think music I is music. Yeah. I've really got to that point because I see it as a gulag that was keeping me stupid and keeping people hating each other, tribal and hating each other uh, over weird kind of things like beats per minute leaving the what out or <laughs> whatever yeah, it but, takes but with that mike you head overseas and suddenly you're part of festivals and it is all these genres and it is all mixed up it seems like there was something both geographic and time-based that did that because it was the same for me i mean if you liked heavy metal you didn't like punk and if you like punk you couldn't listen and appreciate you too let alone jazz or anything like that with that there is something that changes well, of course it's crazy, but that's <laughs> part of, I think, what, you know, I mean, look, you remember also in the early 90s, remember when they started mixing? It's a marketing man's shortcut at trying to sell shit. For sure. But it cheats everybody yeah. in the long run. I mean, run. and I felt that. I mean, I'm really thinking about, I, I always bring this up, I think about that soundtrack for the movie Judgment Night in the earlier mid-90s, which was like the first real time you saw the heavy bands with the heavy hip-hop hardcore bands, and you realize when you listen to it that, well, it's just music. And they were keeping those two really divided. I mean, yeah. that was as crazy as the rockers and the disco people back in the 70s. Yeah, or that stuff that the Who, Pete Townsend's opera, oh. Quadrophenia, right? It's rockers and uh, mods. I mean, this this stuff yeah. goes, it's crazy. Roundheads and royalists and, you know, the outfits against outfits. You can... Okay, you can pick the, the human behavior, but then the mentality is really common to all this bizarre, weird partisanship. There's nothing that's, wrong. It's Shakespearean. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it. That's it. So me and D. Boone are meeting these people up in Hollywood. Now, Pedro's 30 miles from Hollywood. It's all I knew when I moved here from Virginia. And I'm meeting these cats. You could tell. They got fake names, funny clothes. You could tell socially they don't. Yeah, they don't fit in too well with people they probably went to school with. But are they deep in the music? Yeah, like Petty Bone playing me Ascension and talking to you know Don Bowles, the drummers of the Germs, about Sun Ra. I mean, these they're the ones who opened up our minds, Mitch. It was the cats at the gig. That's the same 200 people you're seeing every weekend, but you don't really know them, right? Yeah. SoCal's really 150 towns. Just no space between them. It looks like one town, but it ain't. So, you, you, but you meet these guys and they're turning you on. Then you also know about this magic device, the mixtape, the cassette that's got all the tunes they like and want you to hear. That gets passed around and passed around. And it, it's People ask me, what was the old days about? It was about people. I think the new days is about people too. These people on my show, what Pedro show, right? I would have never known 90% of them if I wasn't turned on to them by other cats. But that's the MO from the movement for me for 45 years. So I almost take it for a matter of fact. So, but you have this bass, and yeah. the bass is the gateway. You're singing, you're writing songs, of course, yeah. but you're becoming known as a guy who can lay down the four strings. And I'm always interested in what are you practicing and what are you thinking about this instrument? In particular, it was a fairly newish instrument even back then. It still is now, I'd argue. Yeah. But at the same time, you're so exposed to different things and you're doing so many things creatively. How are you practicing it? How do you see the instrument? Can you go back in time and think about what you did when you looked at those four strings across from your bed? Yeah, well, I thought I got to have some kind of focus. I need an anchor. It'll be the tune. T-Boom brings me a tune or I'm going to bring him a tune. That bass is going to aid and abet that tune. First thing I do, give that tune a title. Now, how can I use that bass to realize that title as music? How can I make space for D. Boone? How can I make space for Georgie? How can I make a statement that will get an interesting conversation going? Or how do I apply to D. Boone's conversation? I, I anchored it to the tune, and I'd anchored it to responsibility to the tune. Where we're trippy, right? We're not that harmonic. That's why I think bass is really good for composition in a way, because it leaves so much room. I've had people hate that. 
God, why, why didn't you write that on kick drum or cymbals? People like Nels Klein, they love it because we're not so harmonic, but we do have the rhythm. We do have the starts and stops, right? Music basically I've, I've learned is rhythm, melody, harmony, and then spiel. Sometimes you got some spiel. And it, even if it don't have spiel, it's got a title. When John Coltrane called that song, Alabama, you know, have you ever seen the lead sheet for Love Supreme? He says, quote, Alabama. Yeah, that's my kind of score. <laughs> Talk about, remember I wrote a tune called Self-Reference with John Coltrane. In some ways, you're right. We were on parallel paths. That's what Raymond showed me. That was where I got the thing about music is music. And we're all born in different situations, like you said, in different times. But man, that's a great unifier. That's a great humanizer. Yeah. But what am I going to do looking at that four strings, like you're saying? I got to make it work for that tune, for that moment. So that's what I did. It's funny. I'll often play music for my young kids and I'll ask them if the music sounds old or new. I'm just curious to hear what they say. Wow. Interesting. It's interesting. Look, young person now, Black Sabbath is 50 years old. When we were kids, were we listening to Charlie Patton? I wish. I fucking wish. I bet you young kids now listen to Charlie, Charlie Patton. But we wouldn't even listen. I remember that, that Woodstock movie came out. It was a midnight movie in Long Beach. And Shadana comes out. These guys stick. Remember, this is a movie. They stand up. That's my dad's fucking music. That was only the 50s. It was only like 10 or 12 years old. What a narcissist era, the 70s, man. So I think actually there is more open-mindedness too. So maybe your kids old, new, you know, there was yeah, this great band called Black uh, Humor up in the city. And they had this line that said, the only thing new is you. Find out about it. <laughs> I think for me, it's more like there was moments in time where you heard something and it transformed you. So for me, there were two that I think about as we're having this conversation. One was the album had been out decades plus, but when I heard the Jacko Pastorius solo album, I thought this is something else. And then finding out it, it had come out probably 10 plus years before I'd heard it. Another instance and a newer case would be when I heard Slayer for the first time. And it just changed everything I thought I knew about what I thought about Van Halen or The Who or whatever rock bands Kiss, whoever else I was listening to. And I asked my kids this because I'm wondering if I put on Rain and Blood as an example, if to them it sounds like classic rock. Because yeah, it's interesting to me how I can often hear a song and go, well, that must have been the 70s or the 60s. And there's something about that that I think you're right about with new music where there's so much nostalgia being integrated into it also. And nostalgia is really, I think nostalgia is a really powerful tool that a lot of artists use these days. You know, Rock Kid 88 is considered first rock and roll recording, right? There's no backbeat on the drums. Right. No Earl Palmer yet. Yeah, he wasn't, him, he wasn't doing that with Lil Richard yet. But it's still got the rock and roll, but it ain't there yet. It's trippy. You can actually, this is a wonderful thing about the YouTube. People say, look, it's so easy. That's not a negative thing. You can check things out. You can see how they, man, the way Jimmy, we were talking about the jazz guys, right? Jimmy Blatton, Paul Chambers. John Coltrane writes a song, Mr. PC. Talk about respect for a bass, man. Wow. Do you reflect on some of those old players like Mingus as well? The, are these well, players that fit well, into your music the, taste? Well, this is the point I'm trying to make. The way the drummer used the kick drum, everybody was in the rhythm section. So you couldn't play it steady. Yeah. You Bogart all over. The piano guy was every, it was the whole band versus the horns. How Django handle it? No <laughs> horns. <laughs> You know, but everybody else, you know, just, you know, either quarter notes or eighth notes as hard as you can. Chonk, right? One of these Charlie Christian songs, the, the nickname is Chonk. because So that kick drum just operated different, you know? And even the trap, you know what trap is an abbreviation for, right? Contraption. It was just yeah. invented on the fly. I wish people knew this. Even classical music, it's really only a couple hundred years. It's not like everything that's old. No, it's just one thing, you know, actually that Wolfgang Mozart guy just, he didn't create anything. He just canonized a lot of stuff. Right. And now we call that, oh, that's the height of music. No, it's just one, one, one path. That's what I want people to get curious about the different paths because they can use that as vocabulary to write their own 
because you know, like with a novel, you don't have to invent one word. You know, no Finnegan's Wake here, but and you could still write an original novel, and I think that's okay. You know, I don't know so, so much nostalgia, but just like you know, I learned that word. Do I have to really forget it because it's an older one? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting too. When I was getting ready for our conversation, Mike, I was thinking a lot about the word opera. One is in your bio, the word comes up quite a bit. And in your music, there seems to be some pendulum that swings where you become interested in, I wouldn't even call it that that style, but it's like a compositional thought, maybe. Encouraging someone to build off of the Who's opera. You already mentioned the Who and one of my favorite bands in the whole world. I'm always curious about bands that can create thematic albums too, because I feel there is that operatic component to it. But there is still something about you that just always makes me curious about your music because you could take something like opera and embed it across your career. Do you think about, oh, I haven't thought about that in a while? Like, how, wh Where does that come from for you? Well, some ways it's the, the way you collab. You collaborate. There's many different ways. Okay. You could be the shot caller. That's usually what happens in my operas. I call them operas. Actually, it was his first one, which wasn't a whole album, right? A quick one ways away. That's the one that really inspired me. Me and Dee Boone loved that, man. And I just thought there was too much that I had to say to fit one tune. So I'm going to have to make a big-ass tune with a lot of parts. That's why I called them operas. And with Dee Boone, I would say that was kind of the pure collab. Because I would bring mm. him. We never taught each other songs. You just played it. The dude, because we grew up together, the dude would just come up with his part. So that was like. You know, you didn't have to teach him anything. He just interpreted what you gave him. Then there's this thing like my operas where I, hey, Raul, would you play this here, Tom? Tom Watson, like my third opera, I did on the guitar. And I'm palsy ass. I made all these demos. He played them much better. Stooges, of course, I'm not telling them these guys how to play their tunes. I'm taking the direction. Then like this new thing, MSSV, Mike Baguetta actually wrote bass parts for me. I've never, not even D. Boone wrote me bass parts. So it's all these different ways, but you're right. The common theme is water on bass, and it is like one big fucking opera. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Margie Boone, D. Boone's mom. It's, it's, well, I was going to say, you know, we're talking about D. Boone, who really tragically and suddenly passed in 1985, I think it was. And it's interesting too. One is it's hard to diminish the impact he had on you as a friend and your life and everything that was there. But it also well, you had the Slayer you record. You had the Slayer record, and you had the what was the other one? One was the Jacko Slayer Pastorius, record. Yeah, and one was Jocko's solo record. Yeah. So mine was yeah. a guy jumping out on the tree and thinking I'm his next door neighbor named Eskimo because <laughs> his eyes were real bad. <laughs> yet uh, thick glasses. But man, that was a sea change I and never then, recovered from. That was a sea change. Right. Totally. But that's what, well, well, what's interesting is if in an alternate multiverse, if he were still around, your career would still make as much sense as it does. It's an interesting thing that he impacted you so much in that period of time that your desire to be creative and to choose art yeah. is really unique. If I think about Minutemen to Firehose, to whether you're going back to the Stooges or doing MSSV or recording solo. There was something in that relationship of just discovering art that, I, you know, I don't know if the, if Firehose could have ever been created had he not passed, no. but it's that interesting was to think about your, yeah. your world. Yeah. Yeah. Nurture, nature, kind of thing. Circumstance. Yeah. Nature, si nurture. Yeah. yeah. And situations and, and, and yeah, heavy circumstance. And you get dealt the hand. Now, how are you going to play the hand? You know, are you going to whine, bellyache? Or, or try to get the base to aid in a bet. That's the way I said, this guy, I didn't know you had to pay money not to have your number in the phone book. And he calls me up. I'm coming over. What? Yeah, I'm a trumpet player, but I buy him his first stamp. That's fire hose. I was in such a bad state, Mitch. Those were the worst days of my life. Edward helped me so much and Georgie. I got to play with Georgie 14 years. That's the thing about bass, yeah. though. You know? Yeah, the way I look at it, it's like glue. And what is glue with nothing to stick to? Just a goddamn puddle, man. We need things to stick to, to give us a sense. Yeah, and the other side is just the audience. 
And I know that maybe you don't think about the audience that much. I don't know if you do. I'd love your thoughts on that. But I was just the audience. And Firehose was such a transformational band for me. It, it hit. It resonated with me as the audience. And knock on wood, I didn't have to go through that tragedy. Of how, you know, Everyone has tragedies of their own. Yep. But there's something very powerful about that, too, when you think about these four strings, this career you've built. If we talked about the past five years, we're talking about, I think, something like 50-plus recordings. I couldn't even keep count of what you've done just in the past five years. Oh, yeah. Do you think about audience art? How do you reconcile that? Are you just, the path is just create, 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 and whoever grabs on, grabs on for the ride? No, I do feel responsibility. Like Torin, I'm going to get my guys home safe. Number one. Number two, people work hard all week to come see you play. You don't want them wasting their money. Number three, whatever. Those two things. So I do feel a responsibility. But part of that is having faith in your gig goers that you don't need to pander to them. You know, that they, they want you to put out something that's kind of trippy. Not not abusive on them, yeah. but, but, but kind of trippy. You know, you know I was depot. Well, I'm always going to be T Boone's bass player. So I, I got that that kind of thing to uphold. So I want to give him the best T Boone's bass player could do without him. Situations he's in. Like this tour here, I'm going to have to do sitting down. But I'm going to be more intense with my eyes. So I can't stand, okay? I can't stand, but I might fall and not get, you know. So I, I'm going to have other ways of trying to be engaged with the, the cats. I, I don't think you should be too aloof. Especially, man, the the money for gigs these days. Oh my God, it's a lot different, right? Yeah. Wow. So it's, it's interesting that you feel that responsibility, and at the same time, yeah, there's a lot of bands touring too. It's not even that yeah. your gig's expensive or you're on the road, but there's yeah. so much competition now yeah. because you know, COVID yeah. just changed everything. Everyone's out. It's always been out. I was reading this thing in nineteen thirty. Well, no, nineteen thirty nine. There was thirty thousand sweat bands. And those guys are yeah. turning what? 15, 16 guys? The economics was nightmare. You think we got, got it bad? Oh my God. But if I look in the short near term, you think about the past 15, 20 years, you know, certain bands can only play certain cities. There were other economic factors at play. Now it seems like because we were tied up for so long, everyone's going everywhere. And the venues are bigger and bigger. I mean, how, when was the last time we saw this many bands touring stadiums? Yeah. Well, I'm not usually engaged in stadium, <laughs> but I have been. I have been. <laughs> there, that's not the best way to see it, Dad. <laughs> or what do they call them? That what's in between the no. shed? The shed. Remember they called the shed. Yeah, the sheds, and then the arenas. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Terrible, right? Listen, I just spent two nights with Metallica, and the first night I just sat in the stadium, thinking, "God, the sound in the stadium's terrible. I feel bad for this band that has probably the latest ripping technology. You could to sound great." Right. Sunday night, thanks to Robert Trujillo, he had me right Robert's down great by the stage. Man. And so that's, yeah, so it's, yeah, that was more tolerable and, and, and a hyper enjoyable experience. But you're right that those vibes make me wonder if you can really get into it. And I do see clips of Taylor Swift audiences going insane. I mean, I get it, but just, I really need to feel that connection and that energy. I just, you know, there's nothing like it for me. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's hard, but I mean... Those circumstances are going to be out there that challenge us to, to play for people in person. I think there's always going to be some kind yeah, of need sure. for that. I think art is art and art needs to have that environment. And, you know, it's funny. What I love so much about the bass is that you could bring it across, like any instrument, across any genre. But the players who fill it are so different and so varied. Even when I'm interviewing stand-up players versus jazz players versus rock players, whoever it might be. And that's one of the things that I think always attracts me to whatever projects you're working on, Mike, is it's like you're playing you, but you're also thinking very differently as you're moving into different creative spaces. And I'm always curious about, you know, some people would fit around with pedals and effects. What do you fiddle around with to get your sound or those tones? I wonder about tones. I've been trying to experiment with tones and stuff, but mainly I'm, I'm dealing with space. Where am I going to put the holes? Where am I going to push the push? Where am I going to put the pull? Where am I going to put the tug? Where am I going to put the slide? The bass has so much kind of 
uh, say in that. You know what I mean? We have quite a heavy influence on the way things go that way. I remember I was being interviewed for the Dodger baseball station, you know, a- a- AM radio. And they, hey, what are you trying to do, Mike? One of the guys is from Pedro, so that's why the interview. What are you trying to do on the base, Mike? Yeah. Tell the Dodger fans. And I'm thinking, man, how can I relate to this without being all muso, right? I'm trying. You know, the closest note to me is the kick drum. I'm trying to dance with the kick drum. That's where I'm seeing you, the bass. You had a great line. I, I, I see the dynamic you had a great there. Line. I, don't, I, I don't know so much about tones and sounds so much. It's the way it's operated with the other instruments. The conversation. That's Mitch. That's kind of what I'm looking at. But I, I would like to learn more about tones and stuff. I got some compressor and stuff. Yeah, I'm trying. Jim Bergantino just gave me this you said, you said that bass is a four-string drum set, and it made yeah. me laugh out loud. I thought that was a great line. No, this is what, what my, my experiences are leading me up to, that, that it's actually kind of like a drum set. Here, here's my big example, the Fender 6, which is actually a baritone guitar, right? It's tuned to octave down, just like us, but the little strings, yeah. it don't give it the sound that we got. We got this push. You know what I mean? Yeah, I was going to say about Jim Bergantino. He's got something called a high-pass filter. Why didn't they have have this like years ago, <laughs> right? Make it tight and punchy. Yeah. So I'm, I am tr- trying to work on tones and stuff like that. But mainly, I'm interested in the conversation I'm having in the moment with the other instruments. You know, almost like Escher. It's, like, you know, MC Escher, his, remember when you're a kid, you're looking at the black light post. Can you see how... They can all fit in there and get the Tetris puzzle going. What brought us to this conversation is MSSV and the new album, Human Reaction, 60-day tour, maybe more. We'll see how I guess it goes. And that <laughs> it was described as post-genre, which I think is really apropos based off of everything we've been talking about to date. When you think about a project like that, it's not to be taken lightly. This isn't a, you're no longer 25. You still have a, a verve and an energy, but your energy is incredible in terms of what you're putting out, what you're willing to do. Can you talk just a little bit about human reaction, going out on tour, philosophy around it? What were you trying to do with this album? Well, I was trying to make do the best job I could for Mike Baguette. That's his idea about post-genre. That's what he calls his music. And I was like, man, you're right up my alley. I couldn't believe when he said that. So I've been trying to live this for the last 40 years. And man, you just, like I said, he's 20 years younger. Young people, man. I had somebody tell me about lazy millennials. Man, almost got angry. Don't sell the next shift short, you know? And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to be the Roy Haynes, right? 98 years old drums, Marshall Allen, 99. I'm out there. You know, I took a drummer on tour who was seven months short of 40 years younger than me. I don't think Hmm. people open-minded enough there's such a gap. With genre, with age, yeah. any kind of discrimination. That's what I'm out there trying to show. I'm also trying to do as best I can for Mike Maguire's music because I dig him. What's touring like for you these days? Is it as easy as it was? Is it much more comfortable because you're used to it? Playing the bass is a very physical instrument also. How, how has that changed? Well, I do all the driving. Last tour, t- uh, 10,380 <laughs> miles. I drove them all. Well, I usually do after the sound check, I caulk in the boat and then they knock on the hatch when it's time to play. So I'm good and rested. I get up there. You're right. It is very physical. It is very, and it takes a lot out of me. So I get all good and rested and give it all I got. Cause why? Who knows if it's going to be your last kick? Who wants to go out halfway? <laughs> so that's, and then I realize this, you look at that paper and you see all those dates. That will overwhelm you. So just like somebody trying to get clean and healthy, gig by gig, day by day, the sun rises, the sun sets. That's the demarcation line. I'll tell you what really helps me. The last 20 years, tour diaries by me, right? I put them yeah. up on the hoot page and yeah, they must be insane. I never read them. I can't imagine people trying to read them, but they're actually a therapy to keep the focus. Just like when I'm trying to write a song focus. I need an anchor. I need foundation. And then, yeah, a little routine from all the years, but still the way things, all the change and all the different people come in your life 
they still make it fresh. That's the thing. Yeah. Don't get cynical. Don't get like, uh, I've seen it all. I'm world weary. No, man, be that eager beaver sailor ready to cross the, right? The uh, equator. I don't know if you know about that, but it's a big ritual. When you cross the equator, you go from a polywog to a shellback. It could be that every night if you if you get it right in your head, I think. Can you talk a little bit about your bass playing? We, we talked about the spaces and the spots and how you're trying to fit in, but has your actual physical playing changed over the years? Do you yes. practice more? Do you practice less? No, I practice talk all the time. That. I practice much every day. But I don't play as hard. Like like you were saying, Fire Hose days, you, you saw some gigs. Some gigs I broke three, four strings. I could change them so quick. <laughs> I don't break strings that much now. I don't play as hard. I'm less strong. But so, so, a couple of years ago, I start, cut down the sugar big time. I don't even use aspirin. No, no, no pain in the joints. You know, I got the bum knee, my hands. Yeah, watch out for sugar, people. I think it really screws with your joints. I can't believe how. But the, the success, you're never going to be as strong as a young man. What you got to do is try to stay limber is what I found. Flexible. Keep loose. Keep limber. So you play a little softer, but play softer consistent. You know, aid and abet that tune. Be there for your guys. Be there for your guys. Bass player's the big hugger. Well, we're the big hugger. We can be the point guard, you know, outside guy, or we can, uh, yeah, be the off guard outside guy or the uh, point guard who's going to get the ball. But we can also be just a guy or the feed child under the hoop, or we can be the big hug. So that's what I try to do. Coaxing sounds out of strings. I've learned to do that more. I think I was a little more of thug as a more younger person, less younger little more trying to coax, not hurt myself, not get pain. Uh, this stuff where I'd reach in to pull and when I was doing slapping and stuff, it just hurt me. If it hurts, stop. Yeah. Try another technique. Maybe that shift is over. You're on to another shift. I think it's about, who's that guy? Her Heracletes? Cletus? You can't stand in the river twice? Same river. You know, the water mm. keeps rushing by. You can pretend, but ain't, you know what I mean? Deal with the hand that's being dealt. And it's interesting. I wouldn't change all the experience, even for the more stronger thug hands. Last question I'm curious about is the role of improv in general and how you play, practice, and even write. How important is improv? How predominant is it in the final recording or in, in a live show? How do you see that? play out some people are really scared of it some people it's just the natural habitat they want to go and see where things go and they're happy to do that in front of an audience what's your headspace around improv you know probably you can't know it ahead of time you look at the result and like most aesthetics it's going to be very subjective i ask i'm curious about improv too man i ask people how do you know who goes first I ask nels <laughs> klein you know nels klein is perfect I do whole albums with that guy without ever showing him any of the songs. Talk about that first take feel. He really does that stuff. And he says, my, my main thing is listening. I said, you got 35 pedals there. What's your favorite pedal? The volume pedal. I think there's something about improv from Nels Klein. I mean, that guy, there's some kind of wisdom there. Uh, John Colt, you know, I, last two years, 10 bios I read on him. A lot of people, oh, you're practicing in public. Well, you, you could be right about that because maybe that's improvising. Maybe that's part of improvising. I think it's, it's, it's a mysterious thing. I really do. But I think it's worth pursuing just as much as scripted stuff. And a lot of times it seems they can kind of work together. You can have scripted things and then, I don't know. It's, it's worth, uh, when, I, when I do it with uh, people my trading files, I just pretend they're in the room with me. And I listen to the first time and I just like that three layer cake thing. I just played with her, Scotty Irvin for the Spirit of Hamlet. I pretended he was in the room and I just playing, no editing, like the way you do your, your spiels here, right? Just go for it. And what, what whatever results, be it may. But man, it, it, yeah, it's scary. That's it, what makes it exciting for sure. Yeah. So we're recording this end of August. 
early September. MSSV is, is going out, doing that. Let people know what other things are happening. It was hard even for me to keep pace when I was trying to figure it out on your website, Mike. What are the other projects we can look forward to in the next short while? Yeah, well, just came out. is a f- like not my fourth opera. It's an opera, but I didn't write the libretto. Charlie Plymel did. Petra Hayden sang his words, played violin and mandolin to my bass. I wrote the whole thing on bass. One of these, uh, China Hoffner, and I recorded it and played it. And she, right, this is bass player Charlie Hayden's daughter. Just by picking up on that, you know, trading files during the situation, right? If it rains lemons, make lemonade. So this is an interesting thing, I think. it's There's no drums. I had to be the drummer. Four string goes. I'm making another Missing Men out. The band I put together for my third opera. And on my 66th birthday, I start recording that. Then I'm going to record a second men album. That's the band I put together for my second opera. Both those things, even though they realize the projects, they deserve a collection of songs, not operas. Let's celebrate those both those units. So that's that's why I got immediate future. Besides a lot of collapse. And you know this trading files. I actually did that. You know about the two bass band Dose. That's how we made the first album yeah. in 1986. But we traded through the U.S. Postal Service cassettes, four-track cassettes. See, a lot of these things, the paradigms are the same. It's just the technologies are different. You know what I mean? A lot of stuff. Yeah, the only thing new is you finding out about it. I love it. Thanks so much for your time. Absolute. Absolute, Mitch. And thanks for having me aboard. And uh, thanks for putting out information for bass players. Really. I salute you. Uh,